That's a little scary when your little brother says he's been promoting you. I don't know what that, what that means. My name is Chris A. and I'm powerless over alcohol. Um, Reese asked me to, uh, if I'd be willing to speak uh, at this Friday night meeting, I don't know, about a month ago, and I said, yeah, sure. That's, I really didn't think about, you know, give it much more thought because I've, you know, had other things going on. But I'll be honest with you, I spent today, um, I didn't have much on my schedule, and I spent today reflecting. And, and, and uh, uh, what, what I want to share with you is some of the, uh, some of the thoughts and, and feelings that have wandered through my life today uh, that, uh, that may, may relate or may connect to some of you where you are today. I first walked through that door on, on, uh, at noon on, on Saturday, uh, April the 27th, 1985. So that means a few weeks ago, uh, I celebrated 34 years. I'm 66, so I was 32 years old at the time. I mean, I'm looking around, and I, you know, at, at, you know, my age now, it's harder for me to tell how old people are. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's some of you in here that were younger than me when I walked in the door, and there are some of you who were older than me when I walked in the door. Um, and I and I remember when I first walked in the door, and I hear people talk about. Um, you know, being sober for, I don't know, God, an eternity, 30 days or, you know, 60 days or you get into the years and I'm thinking that just, that just doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense to me. And, and so what I did, uh, interesting enough, I went back, this is, this is my old big book from, from way back when. This edition isn't even in print anymore. This is the third edition. And, and since, since I was thinking about going to the beginning of, of my journey, uh, that, that, uh, a journey that if I had not walked through that door uh, in April of 1987, I have no doubt that I would not be sitting here today. There, there's that which I believe, and then there's that which I know. Uh, and, and, and there is a difference, and that's one of those things that I, that I can tell you that I know. Um, so let me read a couple of things uh, here and, and start out with the connection. This is from the forward to the very first edition. So I'm thinking about time, right? Uh, <clears throat> we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And the first thing that struck me in that was using the term have recovered, because for years in my life I said, well, I haven't recovered, I'm recovering, where it's an active process. And I don't know, you know, I didn't have a chance to talk to Bill W. about this because <laughs> he died before I came into the program. And maybe there's an issue with words because I know it's a process. And I know the bars hadn't closed, nothing else. There's plenty of ways out there for me to take myself down and others around me that I love. And so I, it'd be interesting to me to talk to him what he means by have recovered. I think I have an idea. I think he would probably agree, yeah, it's, it's a process. But remember, our book says we have a daily, a daily reprieve based on the maintenance of our spiritual condition, right? So clearly there's a, there's a process, but there's also a declaration I think in the in the have recovered that says something fundamental 
can change in my life. I didn't know that at the time. All I knew is that I was hurting and, and uh, I didn't know where else to go. And so I stumbled through that door. So the forward to the second edition. Since the original forward to this book was written in 1939, a wholesale miracle has taken place. Sixteen years have elapsed between our first printing of this book and the presentation in 1955 of our second edition. In that brief space, Alcoholics Anonymous has mushroomed into nearly 6,000 groups whose membership is far above 150,000 recovered alcoholics. Again, there's that, that interesting word. So it, it, it got me to really thinking about the issue of time. And I'll be honest with you, my, my drinking and using days aren't that much of an interest to me now. I mean, they're really not. I mean, I mean, we all know what it's like to get drunk, to, to, and, and we all have various degrees of trouble connected with, with, with getting drunk, with using. I, I was remembering when I, that it's possible that had I been caught for buying a pound of weed in my church parking lot in 1969, <laughs> 1970, excuse me. Probably at that time, what, what were they, some of the old folks, what, what, what was the sentence for a pound of weed in 19, 30 years or something like prison, that? Going to prison, that's right. Yeah, yeah, so, so I'm thinking, you know, there but grace of the God, uh, for the grace of God, and of course then somebody, well, who the hell's grace, you know, but, but <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, you know, what if, or if only, or thank God. And I think every one of us has that, has that experience. Um, so the, I know the issue of time is that is, is when I walked through that door, I couldn't see past what was right. I was hurting so bad that, that, that I couldn't see into tomorrow. My sense of time, and when I hear people talk about, you know, one year, two years, that seemed like an eternity to me. And, and what, <clears throat> what's clear to me now is that first 24 hours, that first week, that first month, was a lot longer than the past 34 years. Yeah. A lot longer. So, so clearly the, the, the clock that's ticking is the same 24 hours you know, over and over and over again. Well, what was different is my perception of that. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, I was hurt not only from alcohol, but um, I also uh, have a real strong connection with, with Bill Wilson because he was a stockbroker and um, I worked down the street at a brokerage firm. Actually, I was a marriage and family therapist and took a detour through that industry. And my drinking was increasing pretty radically the more money that I lost. I was drinking to numb the pain of the reality of losing money. I didn't, <clears throat> we didn't call it gambling at the time. We called it speculative investing. <laughs> <laughs> Which gets me to the lies we tell ourselves, but we'll put that one on hold for a second. Uh, and and <clears throat> I went into, well, let me say this. I'm a veteran of five uh, treatment programs and, and psychiatric hospitalizations, all of which took place after I, had my, I took my last drink. So actually, I'll jump ahead. One of the lies that, that, that I was told when I walked through the door is, you know, stop drinking and your life will get better. Really? No. Huh. My life got worse because, I mean, not really, but yeah, it did. 
my life situation got worse and worse and worse. What I discovered was that <clears throat> that I had a problem with alcohol, that I had a problem gambling, but I, mainly I had a problem with me. And then when I walked through that door and I left the alcohol behind, then the problem of me was right front and center. I saw it in you guys' faces. I saw it in my face. Now, I can't explain this. I can't tell you why it happened, but, but I'm one of those people that, that didn't take another drink after I walked through the door of this program. And I believe, I'll take that back, I know that that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Because what I also know is that when I crashed and burned with my other addiction, had I been drinking when I crashed and burned with my other addiction, I would have killed myself because the alcohol would have eliminated the only conscious critical screen that I had between that part of me that wanted to die, desperately wanted to die. And I wanted to die because I'd gone broke. <clears throat> you know, I was a marriage and family therapist. And I ended up in, in divorce court. Uh, I was a financial professional. I ended up in bankruptcy court. And so I wasn't feeling too good about myself. In fact, I felt so much shame about myself and I hated myself so much that the way I was going to kill myself was uh, was gas up my van. By the way, a little aside, you know, when, you, when you're homeless, the best way to be homeless is to have a van. Yeah. <laughs> and, and mine had, had a 360 view because I had windows all around and they were, they were smoke windows, so you know, I had a little privacy, a privacy glass. Because the great thing about having a van if you're homeless is you got transportation, you got a place to live, you know, you got a place to crash, you can get out of the weather, that sort of thing. So that was my home, and I lived on the streets in Austin for a period of time. Um, and I, 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 I don't feel the depth of the feelings. I know there's those of you in here who maybe are or, or have slept on the streets. Uh, it's not a fun place to be. Or slept in your car, or maybe you still are, and it's not a fun place to be. In fact, it's, a, it's really a desperate place to be. So I hated myself so much that I was going to kill myself slow. I was going to drive out in the desert in West Texas and uh, uh, run out of gas, and then I was going to die of thirst in three days. I was going to do it slow. That's how much I hated myself. What I know is when I crashed and burned with that particular bottom. And by the way, I told somebody in, in the program once, I said, man, I, I hit rock bottom. And she said, no, you haven't. I said, what do you mean? Yes, I have. She said, no, you haven't. I said, what, why is that? I hear people say they've hit rock bottom all the time. She said, well, because you're still alive. One of the many lessons, you know, we talk about sharing our experience, strength, and hope. So my experience in, in these rooms, starting with this room and, and traveling around to different rooms around the country where my, where my life took me, is that if I listened, then I would learn. If I listened to other people share their experience in their life, if I listened to other people uh, share the strength that they had that came from that experience that they had been willing to sit with instead of run from, because as an addict, the last place I want to be is where I am, and the last person I want to be there with is myself, even though it's a very isolating place to be. So she said, no, you haven't hit rock bottom because you're still alive. However low you've gone, you can go lower. 
my brother Reese and I have a brother who hit rock bottom. He died of his heroin addiction in, in 2002. So I'm a family member of, of, of an addict. I come from an alcoholic family. Uh, whether I have a predisposition for that, I don't know. You know what I also don't know after 34 years? Uh, every now and then I think, you know, I wonder if I could... What if I could take a drink now and stop at just one? Well, there's a lot of other things that I do that I don't stop at one. But today I don't want to place that bet. Maybe I could. But I have no interest in giving away what I have today uh, simply uh, for a glass of wine or whatever it happens to be because I know that I wouldn't stop there. I'm an addict. So this whole notion of, 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 of time... Um, is, is an interesting um, phenomenon because when I walk through this door, where I was stuck is 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 in the present moment, but in a, in a terrible place of despair, hopeless. I saw no way out. I kept doing the same thing over and over again. I don't even know if I was expect. Actually, there was a point where I do the same thing over over again, expecting different results. But then there was a point where that shifted. And I did the same thing over and over again, knowing that there wouldn't be a different result. And it's at that point as if the veil of delusion and denial came crashing down and I saw it for what it really was. And what I know now, what some people helped me learn, is that's that fork in the road where, where I either would kill myself or I'd get well. Well, what happened for me is that uh, I met people, both through the program and outside of the program, I met people uh, who were um, <clears throat> who were godsends to me? I think of this room for me as a lifeboat, and everyone in here is a life preserver. Because I was drowning when I walked through the door, and there were people who would say, "You know, I don't. I know you. I know you don't like yourself, but I do. So hang on to that. Mm-hmm. You know, I know you don't want to live, but <clears throat> you know, I want you to live. So hang on to that." I know you hate yourself, but I don't, but hang on to that. And so, in terms of time, when I walked through the door, I believe this seat was up against that wall. Anybody been around long enough in, in this room to remember that? Maybe, it's, maybe it moves around, I don't know. I don't know how long it's been in this place. But it was against, it was against that wall. I went to, I'd go to, to two meetings a day here. Sometimes I go out to Westlake Hills to the upper class meetings, to the penthouse group. <laughs> and, uh, but one of the things that I also learned um, is this. I listened, we read, uh, I met with people, I went, I went out to the meetings after the meeting uh, because I was, I, was a, I was starving and I wanted to soak up everything that I could because I was that desperate. What was pointed out to me was that, and it was read earlier, that in how it works, in the very first paragraph, three times in our very first paragraph of how it works, it says, constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves, demands rigorous honesty, the capacity to be honest. So three times... And our very first paragraph that we read at every meeting has to do with the word honesty. I'm thinking, well, huh, that's interesting. There must be the emphasis on honesty 
to counter what? The lies in me. Now, I'd lie to others, but the one that I would lie to the most is myself. I kept telling myself, tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow will be different. Next time will be as I told you, until the day where I realized and I finally got honest and admitted to myself that tomorrow is not going to be different. And again, I talk about, I, I ran into that moment where that is a, that's a horrible place to be, and yet it's, it's the place where, it's that fork in the road where, again, we either decide to be well or we decide to die. At least it was for me. And I'm telling you, strictly by the grace of God, I was carried through this door. I've been carried through my life for the last 34 years. That I know. <coughs> and I was carried to a group in Dallas. And I met the equivalent of Dr. Silkworth for AAs in, in, in the field of gambling. And I ended up in, in, in Baltimore. Now, what are the other... <coughs> the incredible... You know, we talk about the, the, the book the history, the traditions, the steps. Uh, but, it, but what keeps all that going is we are a fellowship. We're a fellowship, which means we're here together. So when I was reflecting on my last 34 years, the last 34 years of my life, I reflected on the people in my life, all the, the people sitting in this room, um, many of whom I don't even remember, but I might recognize their faces. I reflect on people who've been a significant part of my life. When I got to Baltimore, <clears throat> I was in a psychiatric hospital up there. I had no money and no insurance. And they were kicking people out right and left, and I'm looking around thinking, when are they coming for me? And they never did. Um, my roommate was a man... Uh, I hadn't thought about him in, in, in quite a few years. My roommate was a man who, under the influence, was responsible uh, as, as the engineer of a train, uh, running into a passenger train, killing 18 people and wounding 56 people. I've been with other alcoholics and addicts who, who, ha who carry the burden in their life of the death of others in the midst. And I, and I remember... He and I would sit on the floor in this lock unit of a psychiatric hospital, and we just would cry. And I thought I had problems. So inevitably what happened was there's the, one of the gifts of being with you all in this room is, it, is in the midst of being completely self-centered, self-absorbed, being, being the worst low-life piece of you-know-what in the world, which actually is rather grandiose, <laughs> if you think about it. It's kind of arrogant, grandiose, kind of like a G-O-D with a little, you know. I'm not the greatest, I'm the worst. Mm. Uh, is, is that what constantly I experienced was an invitation to step outside of myself into that which is bigger than me. Um, so it brought me out of that sense of being completely self-absorbed, consumed with, with the level of pain that I was in, not only from my life circumstance, but a lifetime of struggles uh, that I had and loss and difficulties. And it was the people, it was the faces, it was those encounters, it was sitting on the floor with him, staying up sometimes all night. And there were times where we could go for a couple hours and wouldn't say a word. 
he'd ask me about me, and he'd walk in with his, his wife would come visit him with his two little daughters. He spent time in prison. He was one of my many teachers. Another one of my great teachers was a, a man named Robin. Uh, I spent 28 years in the Chicago area and just moved back home to Austin, so I've come a full circle. I moved back home four years ago. Robin was a man who, 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 who made his home on Skid Row on Lower Wacker Drive, if anybody knows, anybody knows Chicago, on Lower Wacker Drive for 10 years. I mean, he was the archetype of the Skid Row wino. I learned more from that man than almost anybody else in my life, and I've surrounded myself with some amazing, brilliant people. Reese got had the opportunity to meet Robin. I learned so much from him, I can't even begin to come close to share with you, but I will tell you that when I introduce myself, every time I'm in a meeting and I introduce myself, I think of Robin. So I introduce myself as, my name is Chris A., and I'm powerless over alcohol. Now, Robin would go in. This was Robin's meeting. And he ran it. He sat on his throne in the meeting. He had the steps and the traditions behind him and in his studio off North Clark Avenue. And he'd walk into his meeting. And, and, and he would say, you've been here before? No, I haven't. He said, well, just let me give you a clue. Just don't say you're an alcoholic. What? I do that every meeting. I've done that a thousand times. What are you talking about? He said, trust me. Don't do it. Just listen. Well, inevitably, somebody would say, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> now, Robin was a, he knew the big book, and he was a big book literalist. And Robin said, stop. What does it say? He had this big old booming voice. What does it say? And he'd point to the steps, and he'd have the person read it. says, well, it says, we, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Right. So are you powerless over alcohol? Yeah. By that time, you're kind of shaking because everybody's watching. And and <clears throat> what I learned from that first, I thought, well, he just he's just doing it literally because that's what that step says. It doesn't say we admitted we were an alcoholic. I mean, it says in the big book we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives, right? So that's not reading that. But that step says we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And I thought originally it was simply because he was a literalist. And then I realized there was something deeper in that. And here it is. And he and I talked about this later before he died. He died maybe 10 years ago. And I said, you know, Robin, I've been coming to your meeting for I don't know how many years, and I finally, I think I finally get it. And he said, well, it's about time. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, uh, I said, you know what, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm not a compulsive gambler. It's not an I am. It doesn't define me. It does not define who I am. What that's saying is, because once I define myself, then there's a whole set of stuff that goes with that. And I'd sit in a meeting and say, and I I would justify some dumbass thing I'd done. You know, by saying, well, what do you expect? I'm an alcoholic. Of course I did that. I'm an alcoholic. Of course I did that. I'm a whatever. Whatever my addiction is. Of course I do that. So I, got, I was attached to that as an image. And, and if I say I am an alcoholic, that's for me. Anyway, that's, anyway, I'm throwing this out. You guys do with this what you want. But, but what, what it's really saying is that it's a description of my relationship with alcohol. You see, I'm, I'm much more than, than 
an alcoholic. That, that, that doesn't define me. What it does help me understand is that I have a pathological relationship with alcohol that I can't predict if I take a drink, I can't predict where it's going to end. That's what it says. So I have a pathological relationship with that. I have a pathological relationship with gambling and anything else that, that I do once and want to do a whole, whole lot more than once. And that made sense to me. I may still say I'm an alcoholic, but I understand what that means in a different way today. So I'll share that. That was simply, it's nothing, nothing new for me. It's simply something that was shared. And, it, and to me, it seemed like it was one of those things that was hidden in plain sight. So this whole, this whole piece of honesty that, that we talk about, and that's mentioned three times, why is because not only am I telling lies when I walk through the door, but I'm living lies. And I'm living lies in ways that I don't even know I'm living lies. So am I really lying to myself? Well, there's, you know, what I was taught was there's lots of different lies. There's, there's my deliberate, willful, conscious attempt to bullshit you, to tell you something that's not true. Right? That's kind of the first level. But that's not the best lie. The best lie is the one that's, that's 98% true. Like everything I'm telling you is absolutely true. I'm just leaving out one piece that if you knew that piece, it would alter the whole landscape. That's <laughs> right. Like the best con is the one that's 98% true, right? So, so one of the lies, one of the great lies that, that and, and by the way, along with lying, that I've, I've had a tremendous capacity to compartmentalize. So I'd walk into this room and I'd hear somebody say, you can do anything you want to in life except take a drink. Well, a gambler, and he says, hallelujah. <laughs> you know, I just, got, I just got the Bill W. seal of approval. So what's the problem here? You know? Yeah. I go into another 12-step program and say, you do anything in your life except, you know, place a bet or, you know, where it happens. So the way I'd lie to myself is I would compartmentalize. I would figure out a way of, of twisting everything in order for me to still be in charge. So... I made a decision to turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understood God. And isn't that, isn't that beautiful in here? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's so, it's so, uh, uh, well, it, it's, it's in italics. It's underlined there. And uh, <clears throat> my understanding of God has changed, not because God has changed, but my understanding of God has changed me. And, you know, I have the eyes to see things today that I didn't have before, and I have the ears to hear, and I have a heart to receive in a way that I didn't have before. Um, and I'm grateful for that. What I'm most grateful for is, is when we talk about sharing our experience, strength, and hope, what I believe is that's the great joy is to get to share that because, you know, we, we all of us know this. We, we don't get to keep it unless we give it away, but we also don't get to live it unless we give it away. Um, I don't want to run from anything in my life anymore. I can't. I got two parts. I got a partial knee replacement on both sides. I got a bad back. <laughs> you know, so I can't run like I used to. But even if I could, I don't want to. That was not true when I walked through the door. I was running from everything, from everybody, from everything. And mostly I was living into the lie that tomorrow would be different. Because once I would think that tomorrow would be different, see, here's the key. Once I would just sit here, and and by the way, I could get really 
high sitting in this room thinking about being in recovery. I'd hear people talk about what it was like. I'd get in my head, I would create the image of me being in recovery, and everything would be great. The money would be flowing in, marriage would be happy, kids would be happy, the birds would be singing, and, <laughs> and, and I'd be feeling great. And I'd walk out the door right smack dab into reality and I'd crash and burn again. And I would be on that merry-go-round. It's, it's not in this, but in, the, in the, the next version of the big book, there's a, one of the stories in there. Uh, I can't remember which one it is, but he or she says, above all things, I had to let go of my fantasy world. I lived, you know, future tripping is just a, is like a small slice of that. I'm talking about I moved from an address lock, stock, and barrel from a place in reality to an address in fantasy world. And the place that was best for me to do that was sitting here in one of these chairs. What I realized is that, is that a percentage of the good feeling that I had was real. Why? Because I was sitting in a place that was safe. And if anything, this was a safe place in a world that wasn't safe for me, that I wasn't safe in. So, so this room is a safe place. This Literally, this room... I don't know if these are the same chairs. Maybe they've been replaced. But was a safe place for me. And God, I needed a safe place. But in sitting in this room, my addict was alive and well and kicking and not wanting to go anywhere. Because again, I would create the fantasy of being in recovery. And I, would, I can get high just by thinking. So that was one of those things that probably took me seven to ten years in my own recovery to begin to figure out. So again, I said to you that, that, that I'm a veteran of, I guess it, it's five hospitals and psychiatric treatment programs after. So I suffer from depression, been treated for depression, it's been a long time since I've been on medication, I don't suffer from that anymore. I believe I have recovered from that, but it has been a, it, it has been a long road um, one of the things I know about myself is I was committed to finding the best people, surrounding myself with the best people, surrounding myself with people who, who wanted to live life and wanted to be well. I can't tell you why I've done that. I'm not patting myself on the back, but I'm grateful that that's the way it is. I'm grateful that I get to find a way of giving back every day of my life. Um, when we talk about the promises, those things were simply words that, that actually were kind of nauseating when I first heard it walking through that door. I mean, there were times I would be double, literally doubled over in pain, in, in, in physical pain uh, from, from the emotional stuff that I was feeling. Um, so I do have a different life today, and I recognize there's a number of you that are in here for your first 30 days, and it may be what I'm talking about is just sounds gibberish. What I do know is that I don't know if your life will get that much better if you stop drinking, but I guarantee that if you keep drinking, it doesn't have a shot at getting better. If you're acting out in any other way, you can keep doing it. Nobody's going to stop you. you know, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, but there is a different way. But what I know is it doesn't happen overnight, and as an addict, I want things to happen yesterday. <laughs> That's the other piece of time. You know, ah, I've been here 30 days, you know, and, you know, and I've been, you know, remember 24 hours initially starts at, at as, as from, from 845 tonight until 845 tomorrow night, that's 24 o'clock. So when we talk about one day at a time, usually we think about today. You know what one day at a time means for me today? It's not 24 o'clock hours. 
one day at a time for me today is an invitation to live fully into the present moment. I used to feel like the present moment was empty, was full of nothing but shit. That's not true. Everything is happening right here, right now. Right here, right now. I'm no place else other than right here, right now with you folks, and I'm grateful for that. Well, let me... <clears throat> problem, anger, page 66. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's almost two pages devoted to issues of sexuality here in, in, in this page, 68 through 70. This is just part of us as human beings. Well, let me, let me wrap up here by um, sharing with you what, what I was taught over the years uh, with the serenity prayer. I like taking and breaking it down into its individual components. When I pray the serenity prayer, my first word is God, which simply means I'm looking to something that is outside of me. That's, a, that's different. That's a shift. Grant me, a grant is a gift. So I'm asking that outside of me for a gift of what? A gift of peace. Grant me the serenity. That comes from accepting that which I cannot control, which is a lot of things. And my life was spent trying to control all kinds of things that I couldn't control. In the meantime, the one that I could control was I was and I was completely out of control. So grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can. Now the only reason I'm asking for courage is because what I really am is afraid. Scared shitless. I walk through this door scared to death. And people in this room said, keep coming. <laughs> keep coming back. Those you know, words that just keep coming back. Because I was used to running from my fear, hiding it, blocking it, numbing it, whatever it happens to be. And, and <clears throat> so what I was taught is that I didn't need to be afraid of my fear. I really didn't need to be afraid. But that's the reason that I'm asking for courage is because what I really have is I'm afraid to do my life different. I'm afraid to let go of whatever it is that I'm so busy hanging on to. So the courage to, that comes from walking through our fear to change the things I can, which means to take charge of my life, and that has been a lifetime journey and still is because there's still a part of me that loves avoiding responsibility for things. And then the third part, the wisdom to know the difference. I'm asking for wisdom because what I'm really saying is I'm not real smart when it comes to my ability to discern what I can control and what I can't control. I get those confused, so I need to discern that. And you know where that discernment comes? It comes from sitting in here listening to you all, listening to other people in my life. I spent a while in a monastery uh, in, in uh, Bardstown, Kentucky in the early 1990s, and I'd go to AA meetings with two of the monks. Huh. <laughs> yeah, monks have problems too. Uh, we talk about all kinds of stuff. You know, you don't know what goes on behind those walls. But, but some amazing people. So um, I want to stop and, and give you all some time. I can go on and on. But I, I'm, I'm grateful to my brother Reese for inviting me, mostly for the journey that I got to take today. That that leaves me in a, an extraordinary place of gratitude. And I I know. That 34 years is a. What, you know how you get 34 years? Don't one day at a time. Don't drink on yeah, that. You just don't. And, and guess what? The clock ticks. Whether you're drinking or not, the clock ticks. Mm -hmm. So getting 34 years is nothing. I mean, it's something. 
But in another sense, it's nothing because today I haven't had a drink. I haven't done anything else today to hurt myself or the people that I love. And that, for me, is a whole different way of thinking and living because I sure did a lot of that in the midst of my active addiction. So thank you for having me here. I don't know where we go from here, but... Questions? Yeah. Anybody got a question? Or if anybody has something that they want to share about themselves or their own experience, then. How old were you when you sobered up? 32. 32. Yeah. Yeah. Did you already have your degree in therapy before you came in here? I did. Would you maybe talk a little bit about that that trajectory of, of like how it has affected your life as a therapist? Yeah, um, it's it's a. I'm grateful today uh, for the price that I had to pay to get to where I am, because um, um, without that, I wouldn't know what I know, and I wouldn't I wouldn't have the freedom to sit with somebody who wants to kill themselves and not be afraid. You know, there's, I mean, for all, I mean, think about it. There's an incredible power in, in simply giving ourselves to be a fallible, you know, we get here by getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we really do. There's an incredible power in, you know, the world that, that there, where there's so much um, noise and illusion and garbage in a place where people say, you know, I'm hurting. I get it. Where, where you're not going to be judged. And so... <clears throat> What I, what I found is that I was one of the few people in the early days that had a foot in both sides. So I had some, but my book learning didn't do a damn thing. And God says, all right, you want me to work with you? I'm going to take you, I'm going I'm to get you a real education. And you're going to go through the gutters. I'm going I'm to take you on a ride that, that if you knew it, you would say, hell no. I spent 10 years with no contact with my kids in recovery. That was a living. Somebody told me that ahead of time. So there were a lot of things in my life that, and a lot of people that I needed to sustain. A lot of life preservers, a lot of life. Thank you. I'm grateful that I get to do what I do. It's a gift. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Yes. Hey, alcoholic. Hey, 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 hey. Thanks for telling your story. I appreciate your honesty. Um, I, uh, I found out today that uh, a friend of mine that I had grown up with uh, has passed. And, uh, I was doing a lot of reflecting today, and I was thinking about all my brothers and sisters I grew up with here in Austin that are dead because of drugs now. And, and the person that told me about this person that had passed, and it's been a while since he's passed, um, he's got, I think, 24 years sober. And, um, and then I started thinking about this small group of us, meaning like three or four of us, that are sober. And, you know, I got sober here at Bolden too, and um, that sign, the grace, but for the grace of God, is probably my favorite sign here because, you know, I truly believe that I'm here by grace. You know, I didn't, I didn't just get myself sober. <laughs> if I could get myself sober, I'd be drinking. Didn't That's take a ticket, stand in line to do that, right? So, you know, I just wanted to say, like, I really respect you telling your story and being honest because I too have hit many bottoms in sobriety, acting out in other ways. And like you said, that's a whole plethora of ways we can act out without a drink. And um, 
you know, I just wanted to thank you for for you telling your story. You know, I, I, I um, I've learned a lot in this room. You know, and um, it's truly an honor to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I have a question. How happy were you when Reese got sober? Boy, that's a great question. I mean, I. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the reality is, is that is is that is the reason I share the experience of 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 having a brother die, and so I knew that Reese was struggling. Uh, by the way, Reese was one of my life preservers up in Chicago. He's probably using it at the time, but that, you know, God uses us in spite of ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's right. You were sober up there? Really? <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, I, feel, I feel an incredible amount of joy uh, that, that I have a brother who is committed uh, to his own health and is committed to this place. And, you know, when I was up in Chicago and I heard he was going to Boulder, I thought, that's pretty awesome. But, you know, I mean, you know, the brother was three years or two years sober before he went back to using also. Uh, but I, I, uh, I'm deeply in love with my brother Reese, uh, and I've never felt closer to him uh, than I do today in my life. Um, I think he's, a, he's an extraordinary man. And some of you have been around know that. Yes, and has is. one of the most beautiful uh, hearts and spirits uh, that I know of. And he's somebody that I look up to and that I die. Nice. Thanks nice. for asking yes, that. <laughs> I did. I, I was thinking one of them, my, my, my buddy uh, Robin up in Chicago, when, I, when our brother Neil died, I was spent a lot of time talking to him because, again, he, he was... He was on the streets, and in the meetings we were at, you, that we'd be sitting there with people who earlier in the day had been walking out of the federal courthouse with $5,000 suits on, and they were in their jeans and T-shirts. And then there would be people with the shopping carts, you know, parked outside on, on the sidewalk. And, you know, Robin saw hundreds and hundreds of addicts die. And I was really wrestling with because, you know, I was a professional in the field, and I couldn't save my brother. So mm -hmm. he said, well, guess what? You're powerless. I knew this, but he reminded me that I was powerless over somebody else's addiction also. But he said something that shocked me at the time, and it's something that I still recoil a little bit with, but, but today I believe it's true. He said, Chris, he said, I got to tell you, he said, what I, what I believe to be true is that some, acts, some addicts need to die. In order, wow. and I thought, well, that's fucked. <laughs> but then I thought about it, and I thought, you know, who am I? I mean, I don't believe that <clears throat> that this is the end. Now that doesn't mean go kill yourself. Mm. You know, the fact is, when I wanted to kill myself, a part of me did need to die, just not all of me, mm. <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, what part? What part of me needs to die? Well, there's a lot there. This book talks about all kinds of parts of ourselves that, that, that we're invited to die. But that was, so to the friends that you've lost, uh, you know, God bless them. And, and uh, this is an important question. Bailey Alcoholic. Yeah. I've sponsored um, an alcoholic to kill himself. Um, and I, I probably know six that I was close to that killed themselves, that, that um, self took himself off medication. So somebody that has, um, 
been through that and gotten off of it, I, I'd love to hear if you can kind of elaborate kind of the warning sign of how you did that and that it wasn't just like, oh, I'm just going to be off my meds. That maybe the, you know, that maybe there's somebody in here that hears that and is like, oh, that's a good idea. And I just wanted to share that yeah. warning because I, I, it hurts right. to see that happen. Right, right. Uh, this is a, we're, we're a funny group of people. You sit in here and, and, and a competent, capable psychiatrist will prescribe you some medication that may help save your life. Say, I don't, I don't, take, I don't like taking drugs. In this room, really? Yeah. <laughs> You're shitting me? You don't want to take... Now, the... the, 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 the I've been malpracticed on. <laughs> but I've also had my life saved by competent, capable physicians. And uh, good. Who's who's our, who's our primary for Dr. Silkworth? You know, Carl. Look at look at the non-alcoholics that were integral to the beginning of this whole fellowship, who brought a wisdom and, and the ability to kind of look in from the outside and see collectively what we couldn't see for ourselves. If you tell yourself that the only person that can help you is another alcoholic, you're full of shit. Yeah. I'll just tell you that right now. Mm-hmm. Because that's not true, because we all in this room have our blinders on. So what, my response to that is, is, is that if, if you're working with a competent, competent, capable psychiatrist, then by God, let them be your higher power in that arena and do what they say. And there are medications that are dangerous to go off cold turkey. Mm-hmm. I didn't, so I'm glad you asked that. I didn't take myself off. What I think I said is I haven't been on medications for many years because there's some you take yourself off, you die. And there are people who we know need to be medically detoxed. Thank God for that. You know, thank God for some of that. I was, I was, last month I was listening to a guy who was, who was a really high-level doc uh, who, who was a crackhead. And he was in recovery. And he runs a program where he uses some of the newer medications to help certain addicts uh, to, to block those cravings and so thank God for modern medicine mm-hmm. but you know we need to have our eyes open too so competent physician thanks for that That's a, I'm glad you asked me to clarify that just hi yeah. I'm Mary Alcoholic I, just, I wanted to thank you for talking about lying and about the 98% because um, <laughs> you know I'm over the 10 year hump uh, of sobriety I, it's that 2% that, you know, you have to be vigil. I have to be vigilant. And it's that 2% that's like wacky. Um, and, you know, that's why on a daily basis I have truly going on. But, you know, I, I just appreciated that. that piece. The whole message has been great, but that certainly is uh, a piece for me as the years go on, just because I'm not lying to myself because I'm really good at it. Well, I think we're sitting in a room full of scholars. Everyone in here. I mean, everyone in here has a PhD in bullshit. I mean, we've elevated uh, lying to an art form. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, and I, and I think that's why. Again, I hadn't noticed it until I looked back three times in the very first paragraph. Again, think about that. We read it every single meeting. Well, there must be something significant in that, right? Thanks. I have one. Yes. I'm on high. Um, how has gratitude, which I'm sure you practice, affected the quality of your sobriety? I think gratitude is a function. Uh, well, that's well, that's a great question. I, I I feel like gratitude is a um, is a function of sobriety. It's, it's 
it's not separate from it, it's, it's part of it. And I, and, I, and I think my gratitude comes from being in a place where I can turn around and look back. Uh, it takes a long time to get there. Turn around and look back and, and look at where I was and where I am today and to actually say, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Everything that I went through, I had to go through everything that I went through in order to be where I am today. And if I hadn't gone through that, I wouldn't be who I am and where I am today. So I wouldn't change one bit of it. Now, there was a time where I lived in a lot of remorse for the past. So my gratitude uh, is, you know, thank God that, that I always had a sense of a, of a loving God who was carrying me through, even though uh, that loving God and I had some, had some words <laughs> at times. So that, but that's a great question. So, I, yeah, I think gratitude is a... I don't think it's something we work toward. Although I think it's something that I, I need to practice. If 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 I'm if I'm living in in um, uh, maybe pessimism, or if I'm living out of that victim place, you know, which we really didn't talk about, but I was an expert at that. If we live out of that victim place, then maybe sometimes we have to what do we say? Fake it till we make it, or actually practice gratitude. Until it becomes a part of our life, so I think it's one of the gifts that comes from simply continuing. Does that, does that make sense? Total sense. Thank you so much. Great question. Yeah, but you got any questions? In our family growing up, you couldn't get the kid to shut up. Just <laughs> <laughs> talk nonstop. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't get a word in edgewise. Uh, yeah, so I was sober in Chicago, and uh, <laughs> in that stint of sobriety, you had, you had I came to Austin, and you said, "Hey, go check out Bolden." So I came here, I think, in '88, and so in 2011. When I was sitting in Polvo's parking lot, the light bulb went off and Bolden popped into my head. So yeah. So thanks, uh, thanks everybody for being here. We give out chip to Bolden. Has anybody celebrating years? Multiple years? About 18 months. About 34 years. 34 years. Whoa. Wow. Three, three X's, an I, and a B. Yeah, now you can start drinking. <laughs> <laughs>